Hello and welcome to the Library Coven, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish besties discuss mostly YA fantasy through the lens of intersectional feminist criticism. Why? Because critique is our fangirl love language and because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jesse and I'm Kelly. And in this episode, we're discussing The Dragon Republic by R.F. Kuang. The story picks up pretty soon after the horrors of the Poppy War, the title of the last book, and the name of the actual war. Ren is with the Psyche, and they're on a self-motivated mission to kill the Vipress when they're scooped up by the Dragon Province and Naja, who is still alive. And now they're taking part in a war to kill the Vipress and install a democracy. Of course, none of it goes to plan. There's fighting and bloodshed and lots of backstabbing, and everything is a huge fucking mess. Also, this is a great time to mention that this book is written for adults, and you can tell when you read it. It definitely deserves a content warning for violence, genocide, and sexual abuse. Hey, magical people! Join us on Discord! We especially love sharing pics of the various fiber and baking arts that we get up to. We discuss Great British Bake Off, obviously, and we wax poetic about our non-human animal companions. You can join our Discord by becoming a patron on Patreon. We have a pay-what-you-can model starting at $1 a month, and if financial support isn't possible for you, that's totally fine. We don't want money to be a barrier to entry for the community, so shoot us an email or a DM, and we can add you to the Discord server. Initial reactions. I enjoyed this much more than the Poppy War. There's a lot of traveling, but all with a very well laid out mission. So I felt like better about it. I was wondering um, what you're going to think about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seemed like there was like a point to it. So I felt good about it. I liked the relationship between the characters and I liked to see how Ren was becoming her own person. I will say I didn't remember a ton about the last book. So the cast of characters felt a bit big for me, but I enjoyed them all. And I really liked the audiobook. It's very long. I think it's like 24 hours. So for me, that's 20, 12 hours because I listen to it on two times the speed. But it's a pretty long book. So like if you're going to take this on, be prepared to like settle in. <laughs> Definitely. I enjoyed this book immensely. I also listened to the audiobook, So I was able to do like craft shit and get kind of zoned in, which I'm finding I just really need during the pandemic. Like reading physical books is just harder for me to focus lately. I was totally enamored with the world and the like cadre of very well-developed characters. There's admittedly a lot of battle scenes and travel sequences. I'm not sure that I would have enjoyed reading the physical book as much just because of like my pandemic unconcentration. At the same time, I can't wait to read the last book in the trilogy, The Burning God. Excited for where Rin's character arc is going. I know RF Kuang is going to break my heart. Yeah, definitely. Also, I guess I should point out that like kind of a while ago, around this time last year, um, we did get an email from Saida, S-A-I-D-A-H, asking us when we were going to do an episode for the Dragon Republic. <laughs> this so, one's for you. Yeah, we're a le- year behind, but here you are. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for reaching out. We love our people. Time to talk about world building in Through the Wardrobe. There's a lot of names of different empires and geographical regions and stuff. And because all of this geopolitical structures are in flux, 
it makes it a little bit more confusing. So at this point, the Nakara Empire has splintered and civil war ensues. So all the different provinces are shifting alliances and deciding if they're going to hang with the Vipress and the Empire, or which was like a federation, essentially, of... It wasn't called the Federation because that was the Federation of Mugen, which is the one that Rin blew up last book with like an entire volcano. Oh, my God. So there was a lot of moving around between the different provinces. I think that helped with the world building. You're describing, you know, the different you're moving up the rivers most of the time because they're doing naval warfare. So that's kind of how we got access to the world, at least in the first half of the novel. Yeah. And I would say like because like for both of us, probably I listened to the audiobook and I didn't have a physical book handy. Like a map would have been very helpful. And I'm going to guess there is one in the actual book. I do have the physical book and the map is very helpful. There are two maps, actually. Oh, nice. One is like the whole peninsula, including the other islands and the Bagra Desert and the quote unquote hinterlands up north. And then there is another one zoomed in of Arlong and the dragon province and the rat and tiger and hare and boar provinces. So it like zooms in on this area where most of the action is taking place during the novel yeah so I guess I would say I kind of wish there was a way for audiobooks to like also give you access to that in some way maybe like I checked it out from the library from Hoopla which like is where I get most of my audiobooks but like it would be cool if there was like a link to a pdf or something of the map now the map is probably on the author's website and I could have just gone and looked at it <laughs> but it I did probably not. is it probably is <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so I think a map would have been helpful just because there's like they they talk about a lot of different places and in my head I'm just like there's just a blank map in my head and I'm just like that's somewhere I could actually use a PowerPoint presentation that showed like the arrows of the directions they were moving in and stuff like that would be really cool to like see the progress of the you know conflicts charted out so we see the fallout of these violent military conflicts so like famine mass migration land decimation polluted rivers uh etc etc and this forms the backdrop of most of the book but especially the second half Yeah, so in the second half of the novel, we see that there's like a lot of refugees in the Dragon Province, and they're also kind of using them as like bait, I guess, kind of. I really appreciated how the story showed the terrible treatment of the refugees and how the warlords were willing to sacrifice citizens to make gains. I think in a lot of literature, those types of sacrifices are written off as mistakes instead of intentional choices. And maybe that's because we also read a lot of YA books, but I appreciated that like that Kwong was really willing to show that like no these aren't always mistakes like sometimes people are doing this on purpose because there's something that they want that is worth it to them to kill like innocent people so um, I appreciated this depiction of that and I think she did a really good job like writing those scenes and showing like the refugee encampments and stuff definitely agree and how they're part of the like the refugees then become part of the political calculus especially at the end of the story because they're kind of talking about like how it'll be like the people and not like the upper class people who are going to be fighting the wars and there's so many more of them and you also see then Rin starting to make those decisions like well we have so many people who can fight like if we lose a thousand people it doesn't mean anything we have a thousand more Mm -hmm. (laughs) so then you kind of see Rin's brain starting to like make those calculations as well yeah the tactical decisions that you're realizing are like no these are actually you're quite literally playing with people's lives that's what the military does Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) I'm really stoked for Rin to get back to her roots in the final installment. 
it seems like it's setting up setting it up that way correct like fighting alongside her southern siblings against the richer extractive class from the north yeah and it's funny to see this become like a north south thing because i actually don't know if rf kwong is american i don't remember because i know she went to school in the uk um but it's funny because they're setting up a civil war between the north and the south and that always makes me think of the united states you know um yeah but it is interesting because you also see rin kind of dealing with like like she's from the rooster province and she is also like not very accepted there. So you kind of see her dealing with like being from there, but also not being accepted there, but also like kind of joining back up with them in this book. So, and also having a hard time like seeing herself reflected there. Cause she is, it's this strange tension because she's like the quote unquote last spearly, but mm-hmm. we all know that nature versus nurture is like a problematic dichotomy. So you know, but she grew up and was raised in the Rooster Province, and then also bears phenotypic similarities. And you can see her really struggling. I like how she gets called out on her like shame and assimilation, her like uplift suasion, to use Kendi's term, like that model. She's like, okay, I'll just do everything the exact right way that the that my oppressors want, and join their ranks. And I like how she gets called on that in her at, in the end of the. Um, the Dragon Republic. Yeah, I definitely think that uh, Kwong did a good job with that, like showing those, you know, differences. Wands out. Let's discuss all things magic. Rin spends a good portion of the novel without being able to call the Phoenix God and consequently without being able to use her powers. And we see this is a, a big point of struggle and gets resolved in a really interesting way that I'm excited to talk about. Yeah, I felt kind of like I wasn't expecting this. I don't think that she wouldn't be able to call the the Phoenix God. That wasn't part of the last book. So, right. I really struggled to remember the last book. <laughs> so the, the last book was all about like learning what shamanism is and right. And like learning to call the Phoenix God. And she was just like so fucking angry. And that's why she was able to make the. The Phoenix loves that and was able to like go through her and make the volcano explode and everything. Then she gets cut off from the Phoenix because of the Vipress who puts some sort right. of seal like in her mind mm-hmm. and then it has to like figure out ways to circumvent it. And there's poison in her blood and also like she has to go to the metaphysical realm and stuff. And then yeah. she does eventually learn how to use call the God and learns how to take control of her of the powers, which I thought is really rad. And pretty typical of, like, a fantasy novel. I also thought it was, like, really interesting the way that Rin lost her powers, but then at the same time, she's, like, becoming better, I think, maybe at battle, like, coming into her own without the power. And I think I kind of appreciated that because we often, I think we often see, like, people, like, we kind of see it, I think, like, in Children of Blood and Bone, like, people coming into their own with their power in particular, like, how to use their power and, like, how that's such a big part of who they are. But I think because um, Rin's power comes from, like, outside sources, the Phoenix God, she kind of is, like, coming into her own as a person and can be powerful without, you know, without the magic. And I, I, I thought that was, like, a good way to show Rin becoming, like, who she really is outside of that. Totally. And that she needed to individuate. And that was one of the problems that, like, these other shamans have, you know, as they just eventually, quote unquote, go crazy and are gone 
from and the god is just left a, they're like a, a vessel that the god can then just do whatever and that's what we see with Phelan. Mm-hmm. Naja has dragon powers god powers i didn't see this coming neither we nor he know what we can what he can do because he's you know feels a lot of very strong feelings about his powers and they have a high cost he has chronic pain and then he also has like this tattoo and then also seizures so super messy and sad the way he feels about himself there's lots of shame and that's understandable given what happened with his little brother he like went up the nine curves river and the dragon ate his brother and then the dragon it implies sexually assaulted Naja. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't imply. I, I don't. What did you, did it imply that? What do you think? I think so, but I also am not sure because Naja kind of didn't really want to talk about it, which is fine. But as a reader, I was like, I don't know because I think at one point Rin calls, no, sorry. Naja calls, the phoenix god Rin's like abuser and so it's hard to know if that is sexual assault or physical assault i mean both of them are a type of physical assault mm-hmm. so i'm not really 100 percent sure but obviously something happened that i guess my guess is we'll find out more about in the next book mm-hmm. I, I appreciated the juxtaposition with Rin. you know how naja is seeing like being touched by a god as a curse and not as a gift and this is one of the things that drives him and Rin apart because she's like, you have power and you won't use it. To be fair, that was assumptions. Like she didn't know what it cost him to get it. And at the same time, she doesn't care. So I kind of appreciated how there was a lot of murkiness and gray area. And did you put together that this is the, the like scene with Naja and his little brother is the scene that opens the novel. Yeah, I did. (laughs) Full circle. Don't you love it? I love it. (laughs) So Kelly's going to love this. (laughs) I was also unsure if a lot of the things that Najah is feeling about his powers, like the chronic pain and the seizures, is because he's not using his powers. Like, it's hard to tell, like, exactly where that's coming from. So some of it from Rin's point of view might be thinking that, like, because he's denying his powers, that's why he's having so many problems using them. I don't really know. But it also seems like it could be recoil, because he does seem Mm -hmm. to suffer effects after he uses them to save Rin. So, yeah. It's all very complicated. Yeah. We know he can like do some shit with water. Like he can move water around. <laughs> he does that to save Rin. I really like this quote that Kate says after experiencing the Phoenix God's power for one of the first times. He says, devouring feels good. There's lots of devouring powers uh, in the podcast novels lately. And I think it's kind of an invitation to examine our extractive ways of being in relationship with each other and the planet slash other species. So I have a few further reading and listening suggestions, but do you have anything you want to say about that? Devouring. No, because all I can think of when I think hear the word devouring is food. So <laughs> <laughs> baked goods, delicious baked goods. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm currently reading Bridget Walkemmer's Braiding Sweetgrass. Uh, it weaves together like Western science, quote unquote, like objective, quote unquote, Western science and biology, and then also indigenous teachings about plants. So that's like mind blowing and awesome. And I also found a rad podcast with tons of wisdom. It's called the Indigenous Futures Podcast. And I've only found it on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so far. I think it's also on Player FM or something. So anyway, that's what I have to say about devouring and magic. Now 
now we're going to talk about conflict villains and good versus evil in our segment get me kylo ren Rin gets used as a weapon slash tool slash means for these bigger players. And this happens when she's desperately seeking a sense of purpose that's extrinsic to herself. First, it's the Empire and then it's the Dragon the Republic. But it's like the Dragon Republic, honestly, because it's a puppet government for the Dragon Warlord to have power. I just thought that this is one of the like this is the one the ways like Rin gets used for evil means, we could say. Definitely. She consents to that and is complicit in it a lot of the time. And I was curious, like, why? And it seems like it's this, like, sense of purpose. Yeah, I think so, for sure. Like, I don't remember who it is, but somebody calls her on it in the book that, like, she's always doing the work of someone else, like, kind of trying to, like, fit in somewhere and find her place in the world, it seems. And that just allows for people to use her for whatever they want to do. Yep. Easily manipulated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i mean if we're on if i'm being honest she's like very young which sometimes i forget about because like the first book takes place over like kind of a long time like the whole time they're at Senegard. but she is kind of young and honestly like she is in the military and probably taught to take orders so that probably affects kind of a lot and even before that she's like living in a family who's like do what i say like no questions asked kind of thing so um i'm mean, gonna guess that's kind of a hard habit to break. Yeah, it's definitely been trained. And then we have Naja, who is definitely a villain. He literally stabs Rin in the back. Ah, heartbreak. I was really coming around to him too, so I Same. was very disappointed. Ugh. And then his dad, Vaisra, who is the absolute worst and obviously is like just trying to take over and be in charge, which like on a fundamental level, I totally understand because I think most people think like, oh, if I was in charge, I would be so much better than the people who are in charge. But also he's doing it wrong. <laughs> and I like how it defamiliarizes democracy and the idea of a republic, because I think especially in our current context, you know, like American democracy is so fetishized and worshipped and not critiqued substantially um, in ways that lead to structural change. Or that show how it's <laughs> the ideas were not made by the white slave owners who, you know, wrote the Constitution. They're taken from indigenous peoples and, you know, all sorts of different knowledges from other places. And so I like how it was shown how showed how like, yeah, imposing democracy is a strategic geopolitical, like a strategic choice for like to gain material wealth and power. And it's not just like, yay la-di-da democracy everyone's happy just doesn't work like that no that's not <laughs> how it works they're tools who uses the tools and how they use the tools is what matters onward magical friends just as one does not simply walk into mordor one does not simply read fantasy without talking about representations of race class gender and ability this is our segment about power and bodies and how they relate Let's talk about race. I think this is complicated. Everything's so woven together, especially. It's like tied up with colonialism and class and religion. And it, I think Kwong takes a lot of care, like racializing and creating the ethnicity of these white folks from the West who are imposing their evangelical monotheism and a very binary worldview on native populations. 
and captures the missionary fervor of it all, you know, the superior weapons and just, yeah, the Hesperians, is that what they were called? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is one of the major racial groups that stuck out to me. Yeah. And I think it, they're also like the religious group because we see that they're like different from everyone else and that they're, they're like, I think they're the only <laughs> monotheistic religions that we see in the novel. And I forget who it was. I think it was a member of the psych talks about using religion as a way to make yourself feel better about like the bad things you've done or to say why one group of people is better than another. And I really like this because I think it like translates very well into our current times. <laughs> I think she did a good job looking at this and showing the way that missionaries come into countries where there are people of color and kind of try and like kind of create upheaval you know mm -hmm. i would say follow no white saviors on totally social medias excellent <laughs> excellent resource and just how the the religion is a tool for colonization it's like a tool mm -hmm. of subjugation when when yeah. deployed this way i can't remember if it was in the same conversation like the same part of the book that you were talking about uh, where like using religion to make yourself feel better about things, but there was also a point where they're saying about like monotheism, like flipping the script, you know, where you'd like, like typically paganism, quote unquote, or polytheism is like backwards. Or the, I'm using air quotes and <laughs> all over this, uh, or like quote unquote primitive, and they're seeing and they're flipping the script on that and being like, actually, monotheism leads to a really limited worldview that means that you can't like hold differences you know and like you can't make space for differences and you can't hold complex room for complexity and so it leads to like specific actions and types and so I just appreciated like that perspective for sure creepy Petra's studying Rin super rem reminiscent of eugenics and attempts at establishing race as a concept after mm -hmm. the fact after the creation of like systems having created these like hierarchies with white European cis dudes at the top, of course. Yeah. And it was also really weird because the Hesperians were like only going to come to their aid if they knew that they were doing it right, but like wouldn't tell them what the right way was as if to like test how smart, I don't know. It was just like kind of a mess. And I'm just like, who are these people? Yeah. And it was just like so frustrating then seeing Visra just like holding out for this sort of help and realizing that it comes at quite the cost. And that's what we see like the Southern warlords talking about. And also the Vipress mm -hmm. being like, you don't know what it was like to live under colonial occupation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to talk about a little, a little issue, mm -hmm. a little issue I have race related. Um, so at one point, Rin mentions that she's ugly because of her dark skin. And I actually feel a little bit off about the author writing this as like a light skinned Asian person. It's hard to tell if it's a commentary on colorism or not, and I'm going to choose to see the good in people and say it is, but I think if it were a white person writing that sort of self-talk onto a POC, like, it wouldn't go over well. So I feel a little complicated about, like, the depiction of Rin and, like, the dark-skinned people in the book, and I mostly because it's coming from, like, the perspective and the mind of, like, a light-skinned person. That's all I have to say about it. I just, I feel, I feel some kind of way about it. Yeah. I appreciate you pointing this out. I don't know if it's like an internal struggle, like with structures, like racism for the character, mm -hmm. you know, and then we're yeah. going to see that change, but we don't know. So yeah, yeah I appreciate I you know. bringing this up. 
Yeah. But at this point, I'm like, if this was like Holly Black writing this about a black character, I'd be like, what? What? <laughs> you know? Yeah, definitely. So, so for me, I'm kind of just like, I feel a little weird about it, but yeah, we'll we'll see how it goes. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about class. Rin mentions that Naja can't understand how she f- felt when they were at school because he was protected by his class and points out how terrible it is that he didn't realize it. This is at the very end, like basically right before he stabs her in the back. Literally. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but I was glad that she brought that up because I feel like in the last book, there was like a lot of times where we were like, nothing bad's going to happen in a jaw at school. Like he's not going to get in trouble because of like his dad's like a fucking warlord. <laughs> and Rin's you know? like a literal orphan, the last of her spe- the last of her kind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I was pretty happy to see that she like at least brought it up and was like, dude, you have a lot of privilege. Like, come on. Yeah, that was a great. Great moment. I don't have too much else about class. We see a lot of class distinctions, especially with like refugees and like the Vipress and the warlords and stuff and how much they consume versus their the typical infantry or, you know, the citizens. But I yeah, I don't have too much more to say about class. Shall we move on to gender? Let's. One of the things I really appreciate about this world is that gender doesn't seem to be an important aspect when taking into consideration who's in charge and like who can fight in particular. I think we see some patriarchal systems in so much that almost all the people who are in charge are men, with the exception of the Vipress, um, but it doesn't seem like they have to be. So I kind of appreciated this throughout the novel, and I think we kind of see it in the last one as well. Definitely. There's a lot of like strong characters with different of different genders. Pretty binary, mm-hmm. though. Yeah, for sure. You want to talk about coloniality? Yeah, you kind of mentioned this when we were talking about race, but Hesperia spends a lot of time like observing or measuring the wars and like the native populations and deciding whether or not to like quote unquote help. And just like this imperial nanny state situation. I, I just think it like graphs really well. On It allows us a lens to look at our current political situation. And also like the historical events that led us here. And a lot of these like, will we, won't we intervene, you know, playing like fucking around with people on a chessboard, which we see happening at multiple levels. You know, the Hesperians are doing it. And then we also see the warlords doing it and Rin doing it. They literally have a map and pieces like moving them around. Right. Like, and one equals what? like a thousand or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I, I really like how Kwong writes this novel in a way that makes you reflect on things that are happening or have happened and we also see Chagan and Rin having a pretty important conversation about how like quote-unquote hinterland and its derivatives are terms of colonial erasure used by the Nicara empire and the Catraeids aren't the Nemeids or something I don't I don't know how to I think nine nine I don't remember how they're spelled I'm sorry or pronounced so yeah just like that one of the ways colonialism operates is by reducing any sorts of it's like creating a stereotype and then grafting everyone who is outside of the norm or who's indigenous or from the north or whatever onto this stereotype and then yeah i don't know what i'm trying to say there but colonialism sucks yeah it's pretty shitty <laughs> how about ability and body minds so at the beginning of the book we see rin is dealing with ptsd um, and it's leading her to her reliance on opium to cope with, you know, everything that happened in the last book, seeing Alton die, basically genociding a whole group of people 
I kind of forgot that Rin did like some really bad things in the last book. Yeah, she really did. It's a very complicated character. Yep. But we really see it's like the opium keeps coming up again and again in the story, like people's reliance on it and like how they use it as a coping mechanism. And I'm not sure there's meant to be any like commentary there on that, but I think I kind of appreciated having this in there and seeing like Rin deal with like the fallout of, mm-hmm. you know, of her actions from the previous book. Right. We also see that Najah is dealing with chronic pain, which you mentioned earlier, possibly as a result of denying the dragon god. That was like the, the perspective I took from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was maybe Chagon or Kitai who mentioned that like Rin doesn't know how bad it feels because she's like, all of the shamans deal with this pain. And I don't remember if it was Chagon or Kitai, but they mentioned like, you don't know how it feels for that person. Like, because you feel one level of pain doesn't mean uh, the same person who has the same thing doesn't deal with it differently. And I kind of thought about this, like with, you know, like our chronic illnesses, like there are varying levels of how bad it can be on any given day, but also like from person to person. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I really appreciated them saying that just because I'm like, yeah, people can have the same disease and not have to deal with it in the same ways or feel it in the same ways. Yeah, of course. We're all having our different experiences. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I just think about like with me, like my ulcerative colitis, like some people literally have to get their colon removed. And yeah. Like, I'm not there. Like I don't, mine's not that bad. Like right. there are varying degrees of how bad it could be. And, mm-hmm. you know, so just like that, like when you think about it from that mindset of like a lot of things are on a spectrum, you know? Yep. Definitely. Finally, it's time for Shipwrecked, a segment about asexuality, sexuality, sex, romance, and relationships. And sometimes we take liberties and do some shipping of our own. Rin and Katay become Katai become bonded in the metaphysical realm. Their like souls are entwined. I was just like living for this. <laughs> I love friendship so much. Oh my god. That's in capitals on the on the all notes caps. all caps, all caps. <laughs> crying i expect rf kwong is going to break my heart with her she calls them her murder children oh god <laughs> <laughs> because they murder or because she's gonna murder them no, well there's just like a lot of death involved and they do murder a lot of people they do it's funny that you bring this up because Maybe it's because I don't, I think maybe I remember in the last book, like Rin and Katai, like going to Katai's house and like hanging out and being like doing nothing and eating a shit ton of food. Uh-huh. Like that's what I remember from the last book, like most vividly, but I don't really remember them being like especially close. So I was just like, all right, I guess <laughs> <laughs> like I did not feel this friendship maybe as much as I was supposed to. Maybe the like gap between what you read. Yeah. But even in this novel, I was just like okay i guess i don't know wait is katai the one that's really good at accounting yeah okay yeah like he was like really pissed at her at the beginning of the book and i was just like oh they're besties like i did not (laughs) (laughs) i'm here for it (laughs) (laughs) i'm just saying i did not read it that way and i was just like wait what okay i guess (laughs) well because it has to be you have to like love the person yeah, I just didn't see that, like, love between them for most of the book. And then they're like, we're going to bond the two of them. And I was like, wait, what? Because <laughs> I just felt like she was very close with Najah. And I was just like, wait, Katai? Like, really? Like, wasn't he being a little shit this whole time? Like, he was really getting on my nerves. Maybe I just don't like him that much. <laughs> <laughs> All that's to say, 
great way to do it but yeah you're probably not going to be happy after the next book i feel like no we're not going to get an hea (laughs) no 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 and i'm not expecting one okay good (laughs) i love reunion scenes there are a few of them in this book they're like rin and the other members of the psych get back together because they had to split up and that was like oh no the little the gang is split up but then they come back together and that was nice yeah and now they're all dead (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so don't get too attached to anyone i would probably say this book's probably gonna end with rin becoming a dictator (laughs) (laughs) she's gonna be the next vipress probably be just as bad full circle maybe (laughs) full circle that's my guess we'll see how the third book is out like we could read it i guess next season (laughs) i need a break this book's quite violent yeah it was it was quite violent rin and najah I have to talk about this in the shipwrecked section because it feels like several times one or the other of them is almost dying and then they get reunited. <laughs> and I was hoping they would at least like hate fuck or something, but no. I was really hoping for more between the two of them, but I was like not expecting a job to like try and capture her. And I just kind of hope that Rin kills him now, I guess. Yes. Also. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be sad if she takes her vengeance. But I also kind of will because I kind of like him. He's very Kylo Ren to me. Like he fits in the Kylo Ren section because (laughs) he is Kylo Ren. Totally. I super am on board for like Rey and Kylo. Raylo, if you will. Uh So like I'm on board for Ren and the job, but I like just need him to get his shit together and (laughs) stop being such a dick. Yeah, it did seem like that. the, The backstabbing moment was kind of like that moment when Kylo Ren kills his dad. Yeah. Oh, spoilers. <laughs> for a movie for a that two came year out old like movie. five years ago. I think older than that. Yeah. It was in the first one. Anyways, yeah. Maybe Najah will like kill his dad and then I'll be like good job, bro. <laughs> I didn't like Harrison Ford anyways, so <laughs> No me either. Now we're going to talk about writing style, narration, characterization, plot plot structure, and basically whatever else comes to mind in a segment called Kill Your Darlings. I would say A++ on the dialogue RF Kwong. I thought that the voices of each of the characters were distinct, and obviously the audiobook helped with this, but I thought it was like funny and natural and just like super like moved things along at a pace. Yeah, I would agree with that. I did see complaints on instagram they were like it's just too much banter all the time like you don't want banter 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 and i was like but i do (laughs) i love banter i love it (laughs) um so it was a strange complaint but i can kind of see where they're coming from like not everyone is like ready with their their best comments at all times (laughs) (laughs) but anyways yeah i agree like when the characters were talking i knew who each one was and of course yes the audiobook helped but i was also like oh i know who that is kind of Which leads me to say that I think there was a huge cast of characters this time, maybe more than last time. For me, it was too many and that I couldn't always remember who was who and what their roles were like within the psych and within the army. And like, I can remember the big characters like Katai, who I often confused with Chagon, like I couldn't (laughs) keep them apart. Yeah. I know Chagon has like that twin, but she like came and went. So like you didn't always see her. Mm hmm. I don't know. So for me, it was just like a lot of characters. And I was like, wait, who is this again? Like, what is their role within this like cast of characters? Yeah. Yeah. 
I might be misremembering, but the military battle scenes in the last book, the Poppy War seemed like more shocking. Like Golanese and Rin blew up a whole volcano and island with people on it. And I guess maybe I'm just like thinking the violence in the last one was just more like spectacular in the sense of like a spectacle. And the violence in the Dragon Republic is, I don't really know how to describe it, like more transactional, more like military strategy repetitive. What do you think? I would 100% agree. I feel like we put off this reading this book basically because I was like, I don't know that I could read the second one because the first one was just like over the top violent. There was still a lot of violence in this one. Still a lot of dead babies. I don't know what is going on with all these dead children. But yeah, it was not as much as last time, which for me made this like a much more enjoyable reading experience. But I guess maybe the war has kind of like become much smaller now. And maybe that's part of it. Along those lines, there's a shit ton of war and strategy (laughs) talk. (laughs) Which I was not into. I'm like, I can't envision this map that you're talking about. And they're like talking about how they need to do this because of this, this and this. And I was just like, oh, my God, that's like too much for me. I'm not a military strategy person. So I was just like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Recommend if you like. I would say Game of Thrones feels very Game of Thrones-y which also has a huge cast of characters, although I, you do get like the different perspectives. Mm-hmm. It's not a book I really enjoyed, but I did like the TV show up until like the final season. Yeah. I would also say The Punisher, if you love revenge stories and like plot twists. As a TV show, I have not read the comic books, but the TV show on Netflix is A+. plus. love it. Also very violent, so just like be prepared for that and maybe start with Daredevil season two because that leads you into The Punisher. So that's a helpful tutorial. (laughs) Just watch all of Daredevil and then you can watch watch season one of Daredevil so you know what's going on and then watch season two so that you can get to the Punisher and then watch. Oh, my gosh. That sounds like a lot of homework. It is, but it's actually worth it because Daredevil is honestly probably one of the best Marvel TV shows, even though I like the Punisher more. It's like everyone loves Daredevil. It's really good. Before we end, it's time for Real Talk. Did reading this book make your perspective change in any way? Or did it make you interrogate a concept or system or trend that you hadn't before? Somewhere in chapter 11, I don't have a page number because audiobooks. Um, Najah says, this is something his father says, is that there's no such thing as neutrality in a civil war. And I really liked that because I think sometimes people think you can like stand idly by and do nothing when bad things are going on. And this didn't really make me think any differently about like how wars work, but just like not taking a side is kind of like taking the side of the people in power, I guess, or the people with the bigger army or whoever you think is going to (laughs) win. So I just appreciated this. Yeah, there's also a lot of talk about neutrality as far as like libraries are concerned. So it made me think about that as well. About how that is an illusion, right? Libraries are not neutral. (laughs) Yeah, it's, yeah. (laughs) Will you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. Um, I think a lot of people think that libraries have to be neutral in so much as the ALA, I will call them out, have said that like, hate groups can use library spaces 
because libraries have to be neutral. And that's like one of the bigger issues at play, I would say, when talking about library neutrality. And I think that does a huge disservice to, you know, marginalized communities protecting the safety of, you know, white people over everyone else. And I'm not here for it. (laughs) No, thanks. Nope. No, thank you. Thank you for talking about that. I know that you're interested in that research-wise a little bit. Yeah. I'm always down to talk library stuff if people want to talk about libraries. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Library Coven. We'll be back in two weeks for a discussion of Blanca and Roja by Anna-Marie McLemore. As always, we would love to be in conversation with you, magical folks. Let us know what you think of the episode, anything we missed, or just say hi by dropping a line in the comments or by reaching out to us on Twitter or Instagram at the Library Coven. You can post or tweet about the show using the hashtag Critically Reading and hash the Library Coven. And you can contact us via email at thelibrarycoven at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the Library Coven on the podcast app of your choice, and we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review the show and spread the word to other rad people out there. If you're able to support our labor financially, you can make a one-time donation to us on Coffee. You can support us monthly on Patreon in exchange for minisodes, business episodes, and access to the Discord. And you can support the show by shopping on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Kelly is recording on Cheyenne, Ute, and Arapaho land. Jesse is recording on Peoria, Kaskakia, Payankasha, Weya, Miami, Muscotin, Odawa, Sac, Meskwaki, Kickapoo, Potawatomi, Ojibwe, and Chickasaw land. Until next time, stay magical. Stay magical.